Good afternoon, everybody. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to um, the old chapel in the jail of Melbourne Jail, which is now an RMIT property. I don't think we use this for prayers or for prisoners, but it's, it's a lovely place. It's the first time I've been in here. Is the sun irritating you, or should it be a bit, a bit lower, I think? I don't know. Okay. Because this is a, an RMIT um, building uh, on land, um, Aboriginal land, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and we pay respect to elders past, present, and future. Uh, it is a very important point of RMIT culture that we do do this, and uh, I would thank you for accepting that note. I wanted to mention that um, this briefing is a briefing series of uh, seven or eight series, uh, and um, th this is an initiative by Austrade, uh, and we have uh, been elected to. Um, run this series of events to promote the, the ideas of the Australia free trade agreements with Japan, Korea and, uh, and China. And in particular, we, the, the in intent is to try to get uh, small medium enterprises involved in exploiting the opportunities that will arise over time. Uh, through these agreements and others that I think the Australian government will, will move to enter into in time. The, a point I should make, I should confess this to you all, that the Australian Apex Study Centre at RMIT University is very much a centre that promotes open trade and investment policy in the region and globally. We make no bones about that. We think that is the way for Australian, Australia's future and it's the way that uh, I've been directing the centre for the last uh, six or seven years at RMIT University. Um, and so we could argue about um, various forms of agreements uh, or open agreements or the WTO or regional agreements. We're here to talk about some important bilateral agreements. And whichever way we go, Australia needs, in my view, or our view, needs to engage in the region in a, in a very serious way. And the importance of these three agreements is uh, precisely that, that we do engage in an important way. The, um, the reasons are obvious, that the increased trade investment flow uh, increase our prosperity. They engage us in the world that is growing and growing in a dynamic way in the region. And it, it is that linkage, those linkages that will create jobs, employment, growth, technology growth, innovation and entrepreneurship in this country and, and through, through the relationships we develop in the region. We're already well established in both Japan, Korea, in Japan, Korea and China, but this, uh, these agreements give us more access and more leverage to do the things we want to do. 
the nature of these agreements is clearly that we accept the obligation to encourage partners from those three economies into our economy. That, that's clearly what this is about. Uh, it's not one-way traffic. It is that we will, as a consequence of the agreements, become more competitive domestically uh, as these foreign players come into our markets uh, and, and seek opportunities, as we will see, as we hope uh, our industry will seek in those markets. And that's the point of the agreements. It is, uh, we're, we're trying to establish for you all the importance of internationalization and globalization. Um, I know it's um, a phrase that's now on the, uh, not well recommended uh, by some leaders, but it is the way I think uh, we as a center will be going. And it's why we are part of the APEC forums. Uh, we've done a lot of work as we'll come through the discussions on the Asia-Pacific Financial Forum to encourage the embrace of globalization, internationalization of financial system markets. Uh, we, we will go into that when I talk a little bit about the Asia Funds Passport, Region Funds Passport. Before I do that, um, I'd like to introduce Kristen Bondietti, uh, who is the um, a principal trade consultant at ITS Global Asia Pacific. Kristen has a lot of experience in um, international trade policy, uh, working, uh, including work with the OECD, the ASEAN Secretariat, the APEC Secretariat. Uh, she's worked for the ADB and DFAT, and she works assiduously for our, for our center. Uh, her, her chairman of her company is Alan Oxley, who is also the chairman of the center, the uh, Australian APEC Study Center. Uh, following um, Kristen, she will like, introduce I I the, the detail of the uh, three trade agreements and how it impacts and develops opportunities for Australia going forward. And I just wanted to stress this point. We are looking forward over time as re re in in real incomes in middle India or China, or, um, maybe we do enter an agreement with India subsequently, but as middle incomes start to grow significantly in the region, uh, we, I think the idea is, certainly it's the idea the center follows, is that Australian companies are capturing the importance of that growth in real income and opportunity right through this region. It is the growth region of the world. And through demographics, technology, shifts in global strategic thinking, it's going to become more relevant to Australia in the next ten, uh, four or five decades. Following uh, Chris and I will talk about the Asia Region Funds Passport and then Stan Roach, Senior Export Advisor from Australia, uh, will update us on the government's proposed FinTech regulatory sandbox initiatives to support the industry's development. This is an important uh, piece of work that Australia is undertaking uh, to look at the way we can apply financial technology into our financial systems. And through a, a, an innovative uh, 
uh, view by uh, the Australian government to encourage this idea of a sandbox. I think it is between Australia and uh, Singapore, but Stan will talk about that. Um, we will finish uh, around 1.30 uh, with the three presentations, and then please, uh, we invite you to lunch. There is an opportunity for some networking. We hope that as a consequence of this gathering, uh, you will each get to know each other and uh, ourselves, the centre, um, and that you go away sharing the aspirations we have for a more coordinated, integrated uh, region. So thank you all very much for being here. It's a great pleasure to see you. And if I could invite um, Kristen Bondietti, please, to come and speak about the intent of the three agreements. Thank you, Kristen. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, what I would like to do today is give you a quick tour of what's in our North Asian FTAs, so our FTAs with Korea, Japan, and China. So just see if I can work this. I'll look at what's in an FTA and pose some questions about what FTAs can do, why they matter, and then we'll talk about what what we think at ITS Global are the three things that FTAs, FTAs offer. New market opportunities, better doing business better beyond the border, so in the operating environment, and whether FTAs can contribute to greater regulatory integration. And lastly, I'll make a few comments on how perhaps we might secure some of the opportunities that these FTAs raise. Now, I, I emphasize I've used the word opportunity here, because I wouldn't be talking about gains or benefits of the FTAs, because they do present opportunities which are not gains, of course, until they are realised. And I wouldn't want to lie to you in this beautiful building. So what's in an FTA? Well, there are differing views. My views are very different to what um, Korean beef farmers would think, or perhaps what um, Australian trade unions would think about. Chinese investment provisions. So let's just start at the beginning, and I'll give you an overview of what FTAs do and what they don't do. There are a lot of misconceptions out there. We're talking today about services, and particularly financial services, and when it comes to services, FTAs do change laws and regulations in foreign markets and in the home market. And that's principally how FTAs affect changes when it comes to services. They also create opportunities to trade and invest. What they don't do is they won't tell you how to become a better exporter or how to trade, and they don't permit free trade, completely free trade. There are always restrictions and market access commitments are always conditional. I would make the point though that they do more than simply open markets and particularly over time. They regulate now a wider range of economic activity. It's not just about goods, it's not just about tariffs. They cover services, investment, um, labour mobility, e-commerce, sometimes address state-owned enterprises, um, competition policy, a whole range of economic activity. 
and they can do more than offer simple market access concessions. They can perhaps go some way to improving the business environment beyond the border for those companies operating in foreign markets. And we would argue also that they can serve as a catalyst for market reforms in other economies. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But of course the benefits vary, they vary by agreement, and they depend on what is agreed in the particular agreement. Very quickly, just to run through the FTAs we're actually talking about, the free trade agreements, we have the Korean free trade agreement, which I will call CAFTA from now on. Um, it's a comprehensive agreement. It's modelled on our agreement with the United States and also the US agreement with Korea. That's the reference to CORUS there, the acronym. And of the three FTAs, it's the oldest one, even though it's still relatively new, 2014. Then we have what I'll call the Japan Agreement, or JAPA, as it's affectionately known, um, one year later, 2015. Uh, the Japan Agreement is probably the most comprehensive and significant bilateral agreement that Japan's negotiated with the developed economy to date. Um, it does give, on paper at least, access for Australian financial services, which is better than what um, current competitors face in the market and it follows a similar structure to the Korean agreement and is similarly comprehensive. And then we have the China agreement, which came into effect at the end of 2015. So we're just looking at just over a year of operation. Also China's first comprehensive agreement with a developed economy. If we don't include, of course, Hong Kong and, and Macau. Um, and it does grant Australia access in a range of areas that are as yet unmatched by our competitors in um, EU and US. So they're the North Asian FTAs. Do North Asian markets matter for financial services? Well, arguably yes. Financial services are traded and invested. Um, the financial services industry is a major, if not the most major exporter in Australia and of course is dependent on foreign funding and capital investment. North Asian markets are already important, um, particularly for insurance exports. You can see I've got the statistics up there on the um, board. And also there are ongoing growth agendas and policy reforms within some of these economies that will create opportunities for future growth, um, particularly in China as it seeks to uh, modernise and liberalise its services sector. However, having said that, trade with Asia does lag other markets, still only counts for about a third of our cross-border financial relationships, still dominated by the United States, um, the UK and New Zealand. Markets in Asia, as you would all know more than I would, are by and large less developed and less integrated um, than developed economies. And the main point of course, is that barriers, regulatory barriers to services and investment in these economies are still high compared to OECD economies. So what are the three things that I'll argue that free trade agreements can do for business? Well, the first is they can improve market access, and that's something we often hear about by removing or reducing regulatory controls or barriers. They can also enhance the operating environment, so, for example, streamlining licensing procedures, dealing with flows of financial data or permitting labour mobility, and can also promote regulatory integration 
over the longer term. And there are frameworks in the FTAs themselves to help facilitate this. And I'll mention that a little bit more later too. So now if we turn to the first thing that FTAs might do for us, what are the new market opportunities? Well, the first is that as a result of the legal commitments in the FTAs, which is by and large what I'll be talking about here, um, I'm sure that Stan may offer some more practical um, insights into to whether these opportunities have eventuated or not, but the FTAs do have commitments to deliver more services, particularly from Australia, into the foreign markets. So, for example, in Korea, um, there are commitments to increase services, to allow services for investment and portfolio management into Korea. And there's also commitments for insurance services, so for insurance companies to provide a wider range of services, intermediation, advisory and so forth. In Japan, Australian firms can now engage in securities-related transactions on the same terms as Japanese nationals in Japan. They can provide more services to collective investment schemes and some, I guess, um, insurance services as well. An important point about the Japan Agreement is even though access may not be formally have been improved on significantly, it is now bound or guaranteed into the agreement. So Japan cannot make these commitments more restrictive in future. In China, there are enhanced opportunities for fund managers, securities and insurance providers particularly. For example, uh, there's now access to the third-party motor vehicle insurance market. Equity restrictions and establishment requirements have been removed. Uh, companies also can now invest RMB in China's securities markets and provide cross-border securities and brokerage services. And I've just put down on the last point there, um, alongside the FTA, uh, so it was, this was negotiated in parallel to the agreement, Australia was granted an initial aggregate quota of 50, million, um, 50 billion RMB for access into the Qualified Foreign, foreign Institutional Investor Program, um, which allows Australian domiciled <coughs> institutions, including fund managers, to purchase equities and bonds directly from China's mainland securities exchanges in Shanghai and Shenzhen. So they're examples of how Australian firms in Australia can now deliver more services across the border into FTA markets. And I would just note there's a lot more detail on all of this in the handout as well, so I'll just kind of speed through it. As a result of the FTAs, Australian companies can also establish and operate abroad more freely. For example, in Japan, um, there's a general commitment to prohibit controls on establishment. Of course, subject to some exceptions. And there's also freedom to operate in the market generally on the same terms as Japanese providers. So generally no limits on participation of foreign capital and so forth. In Korea, the Korean agreement, um, the agreement to some degree has levelled the playing field for establishment and acquisition of financial institutions in Korea. And by that I mean there are commitments that Korea ensures that it treats Australian firms on the same terms as Korean firms. Uh, for example, Australians can establish representative offices for international accounting services now. Uh, there's also a greater choice of legal form, established as a branch or subsidiary. 
and rights to perform certain business functions, such as trade, transaction processing, data processing, and so forth. In China, there were quite some significant um, commitments in terms of expanding access for companies operating in China. We've seen loosening of equity ownership restrictions. For example, for securities firms, it's now a 49% cap instead of 33%. So some improvement there. Uh, there are better terms for operations of banks as well. Uh, capital requirements for subsidiaries have been removed. Uh, the waiting periods for local currency services have been reduced and some of the other controls as well. Um, and there are now well, lessened controls on, on the form that businesses can take for some services by accounting firms. So, for example, they can now engage in taxation and management consulting services with no requirement on the form of establishment, so the form they need to, to deliver that by. Though, of course, they still are subject to licensing. So when we talk about services in an FTA, it's also important, I think, to mention investment because it seems um, unnatural to consider services without looking at investment as well. Um, one side of the investment um, equation in FTAs is protecting and enforcing investments abroad for Australian firms. So as a result of the FTAs, Australian investments in Korea and Japan and China now receive certain legal protections. So, for example, um, in law there are now um, requirements for compensation for expropriation. Some of the, the minimum legal standards that you expect in, um, you see in bilateral investment treaties as well. China in its in chapter has agreed to treat existing Australian investments equally to domestic investments. To this point, China has actually not made liberalisation commitments for investment in future in the China agreement, that there is a work program in the agreement for China to consider making those commitments over time. Um, that work program has recently been brought forward by a year. Um, you may have seen um, in the media recently when the Chinese Premier um, visited Australia recently, uh, the governments did agree that that review of the investment commitments and the, also the services commitments would commence a bit earlier. Um, and I, the timetable is yet to be determined, of course, but um, it's welcome news that there is indications by China that um, there will be some movement in the investment commitments soon. And then, of course, we look at investment the other way. The FTAs also should support greater foreign investment in Australia. Principally in Australia, on Australia's case, this means um, raising the FERB threshold from 252 million to just over a billion dollars for both Japan and, or for Japan, China and Korea in non-sensitive sectors. There are still lower threshold requirements for sensitive sectors, agribusiness, uh, real estate, so forth. And I would point out that this is equivalent treatment which is given to all our other FTA partners. Um, there are a bit better terms, I think, for the US and for New Zealand. They're not subject to as many exceptions for sensitive sectors, but it does indicate um, consistency of that policy across our FTAs. And lastly, if we're looking at market access opportunities, it's worth talking about how companies may benefit from future liberalisation. So all of the agreements have built-in mechanisms 
to improve on liberalisation commitments over time. And there are several ways this can be done. The first is through what we term a most favoured nation clause, which essentially means that if either they're in the Korean and Japan agreements, if Korea or Japan negotiate a subsequent FTA with another party, which provides better treatment than what is in their, the FTA with Australia, that better treatment is automatically accorded to Australia. So Australian businesses receive the benefit of future liberalisation commitments of these um, um, countries. The Chinese agreement does not provide this right across the board. At the moment, it is limited to security services, but it does apply to existing investments as well. Another way in which commitments are improved on over time is what's termed a ratchet mechanism. So this basically means that if you list exemptions or maintain restrictions as a result of the FTA, um, you agree not to make them more restrictive over time. So your restrictions may be maintained, but you can't increase their level of restrictiveness. And as I mentioned before, all the agreements do provide for reviews where the governments come together to look at improving upon the commitments in services and investments that they've made over time as well. So just recapping on market opportunities, what I put up on the screen are just some questions to consider. I don't propose to answer them, um, at least not at this point. Um, we looked at whether FTAs have made it easier to export from Australia to FTA markets. Um, it, FTAs might have made it easier now, perhaps in the longer term. Secondly, are investments in FTA markets now more attractive or secure as a result of improvements in the operating environment in those foreign markets or as a result of legal protections that actually might be accorded now as a result of the FTA? And further, are there benefits from greater foreign investment in Australia for your business, for Australia at large? presuming, of course, that the FTAs do encourage um, greater investment into Australia. So now, quickly moving on to the second things, thing that FTAs can do, which hopefully is to improve and make business better beyond the border. So we're not talking about tariff concessions, we're talking about companies operating in the FTA markets themselves. So. There are several ways in which the FTAs can ease business operations. They can go some way to helping ease the regulatory burden that businesses face operating in these markets. Uh, there are commitments in the FTAs to work towards streamlining licensing procedures um, or for improving transparency in regulatory decision making. Um, for example, there are some commitments for regulatory authorities to take decisions on licensing and approvals within specified periods of time, for example. Another way in which the regulatory environment or doing business beyond the border can be eased is through transferring of skills, personnel and expertise, principally through commitments for enhancing temporary entry of services providers. And I've sort of put the detail up there on the screen, but all of the agreements do provide for um, greater access for services professionals and particularly professional services, um, financial services professionals to travel in and out of these countries and also work in these countries. Um, I point out there are some sort of associated um, commitments as well under the China agreement. Um, there is agreement that the 
the governments will consider looking at measures to improve the terms for the issuing of licences to Australian accountants down the bottom. Um, that issue has not yet been discussed among the governments, um, principally just because it's still early days, uh, but it is in the agreement and it will be discussed at some time. So if we're looking at how FTAs can help business beyond the border, have they made it easier to operate in FTA markets? Either by making um, uh, generally the environment more certain or transparent, or perhaps there are particular things the FTAs have done to streamline licensing or to improve licensing outcomes. And are there longer term benefits for business from more open regulatory environments in these economies generally? Mindful that there are benefits for Australia's financial services industry generally from having access to more open and competitive markets within the region. And I've put down the bottom there standard setting in the region and by that I mean these agreements may go some way towards instituting disciplines into regulatory environments that promote competition and that create frameworks for countries to further open their markets in the future. And lastly, and very quickly, can FTAs help facilitate or support greater financial integration? All of these agreements include what I would call enablers for regulatory integration initiatives. And they basically create frameworks that can support industry initiatives to pursue this. So they all have institutional frameworks to facilitate recognition agreements. They have working groups on professional services, for example, who bring the regulators together to meet to consider areas in which recognition will be beneficial. And they also, um, a lot of these working groups have specific mandates um, to consider some issues. Um, the, uh, I think it was the, working groups can also serve as a platform to address specific issues as well, or technical barriers. If industry have specific barriers that they feel could be better addressed, or they feel they need to um, help have improved access to regulators in these economies, then these working groups are designed to bring the regulators together to at least initiate discussion and begin the process to working towards solutions. So key considerations for regulatory integration, can they provide a platform for industry initiatives? For example, to facilitate industry to industry mutual recognition agreements? Can they support wider integration efforts in the area, including for example, the Asia Funds Management Passport? And can they address specific barriers that might be affecting business? So just moving quickly now from the point of barriers, Though we've said FTAs can create new market opportunities, they can help improve the business environment in these economies, and they can support wider integration, there are still barriers remaining in all economies. In Korea and Japan, there are principally registration and authorisation requirements to operate. Access, for example, doesn't generally extend to marketing or solicitation of financial services and various controls are maintained. In all of the agreements, governments maintain exceptions to the commitments they make to open the market, and these are listed in the agreements. So it's important when we're looking at access or new market opportunities, they need to be overlaid with the existing barriers or the exemptions to access that have been maintained. 
So I've just put up on the screen, and these again are in a lot more detail in the handout, some examples of regulatory barriers that remain, residency requirements, foreign exchange controls, limits on the scope of service, particular insurance services, and some controls on foreign investment. Similarly, in Japan, we still have restrictions on legal form. For example, accounting enterprises have to establish certain order corporations to operate or tax corporations to deliver services. And again, licensing and registration can act as a barrier, um, particularly for new insurance products that still require approval. And of course, qualification requirements for professional services providers themselves, CPAs, tax accountants, and so forth. China um, is also significant in that there are the market opening in China does not extend to all services. There are significant exceptions in the agreement. It is most open in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone. But it's important to note that the degree of market opening in the China agreement does coincide with the level of liberalisation that's currently going on domestically in China as well. So it does reflect the um, intentions of the Chinese government to open up gradually, but to focus more on um, opening up and liberalising its services sector. So we would expect over time that this to improve. And again, some examples of regulatory barriers. You can still see there's foreign equity controls for securities investment and fund management business. Uh, there's licensing and registration controls again. Limits on the scope of services, for in, in particular in insurance, and also restrictions on legal form and life insurance. A whole range of barriers there. So we've seen what FTAs can do. We've posed some questions as to whether that's occurred yet, and now we've looked at some of the barriers that remain. So of all these opportunities, how do we actually benefit from these? And when I talk about benefits, I'd say that when it comes to services, benefits are very difficult to measure and very difficult to quantify. It's not the same as where you have trading goods and you have a tariff. It's easy to see where the gains are. It's easy to measure in terms of profitability, whether that's had any impact on the business. Services gains are dynamic. So what helps, for example, a transport provider is also going to help businesses which retain or use transport services. Obviously, um, anything that helps more efficient and competitive delivery of financial services is going to go beyond the financial services sector. It's going to affect all the businesses, including goods traders that utilise financial services. And there are broader policy benefits as well that can't be quantified and possibly have not yet been realised. But as I've said before, these agreements play a role in setting standards for more open and competitive services markets in the economy, in the regional economy. And there are longer term benefits to be derived from that. So recalling what FTAs do and what they don't do, they change laws, they create opportunities, they don't make you a better trader necessarily, and they don't create free trade. How can you benefit? But I think it's important to point out that governments negotiate free trade agreements. And when it comes to services, we're talking about regulations and policies which governments maintain control over.
but it is business that trades and it's business that invests. And it's important to remember that. So ultimately, realisation of the opportunities requires more than simply legal commitments in an FTA. They're there and they create opportunities, but really it's, it's, it's a business decision as to whether you can benefit or not. And there are a range of things, obviously, that we need to do to compete in FTA markets. FTAs are no FTAs, a sound business strategy, a good understanding of the market, and obviously a supportive policy environment, which is one of the main things that these FTAs, we believe, offer. Thank you. Not sure what happened to the last slide. <laughs> I think we'll have questions at the end. Yep, great. Thank you, Kristen, for an expert and insightful view about the trade agreements. I, I, can I use, uh, change the program slightly? I'd like to invite Stan Roach uh, to speak next. Um, he's a senior export advisor from Austrade and um, he can update us on the government's proposed fintech regulatory sandbox initiatives to support the industry's development. Stan is, is also an expert on facilitating trade missions in international markets and helping Australian companies succeed in external markets, especially in services sectors. Um, he recently managed the launch of the Services Framework Project, a series of research-based activities aimed at better understanding markets barriers and forming strategies for increasing professional services exports to key markets in Asia, particularly uh, in partnerships between Australia, the Australian Services Roundtable and the Asia Business Link. Uh, Stan is, I think, probably well known to most of you, but uh, himself a dear friend and, a very, and an expert on uh, Australia's work. Stan, if I could invite you here, please. Thank you. Um, I'm not going to discuss just uh, financial technology. I'm also going to cover funds management as well, which is another big passion area of mine. The, the, the FTAs and the current agreements in progress, the regional funds passport, the Asia regional funds passport, is, is more applicable to fund managers than anybody else. In fact, we probably see it as, a, and as an FTA for fund managers. Um, so therefore, Austrade's strategy in financial services, and currently it's only two people, myself and a colleague in Sydney, focuses on both funds management and financial technology. Um, we see two key drivers in, that, in the world, technology disrupting the current space and the growing demand for sophisticated financial products, especially in Asia. In a general sense, financial services were underpinned by arguably the largest and strongest sector in the economy. That's the largest employer in the economy. It contributes the most gross value add over and above mining and other sectors. We also have the largest contestable, fourth largest contestable pool of funds in the world at $2.8 trillion, which is interesting enough. It's greater than the entire GDP of ASEAN. From a FinTech point of view, we have over 350 companies, which by most standards in, in Asia 
They're of high quality and all backed by and underpinned by our gold standard regulation. But I'll, keep, I'll move on to fintech first and then cover funds management secondly. It's the number one industry subsector in the country that's targeted by sophisticated investors, particularly those in venture capital. We've, we've been fortunate that we've been spared by uh, some of the global downturn in those investing into the fintech market. So we've had an increase um, in, in, in the last two years from 185 million to 656 million. Um, having said that, they're probably spread from you know, the seed rounds to A series to B series rounds. Um, I'm also seeing, we're also seeing, Austrade's seeing is some of that investment coming from Asian, Asian uh, countries and Asian investors, which I think is a good thing. Um, we're also fortunate that we're a world leader in the, in the adoption of contact pay, payment systems, and I think that's only going to be boosted by the $1 billion piece of infrastructure known as a new payments platform. Um, on a personal note, I'm going to be curious as to see how um, Macquarie as, a, as an organisation takes up that, because I know they're investing a huge amount of resources of their own in that space. So I, I would dare say look out banks. The other, the other thing that we've got as a big ticket item is that Australia, Standards Australia, and our, with the backing of our treasurer, Treasury, um, are now setting the global standards for blockchain standards for the International Standards Association. And in addition to that, um, we've got appointed um, a key person that's the chair of our own FinTech advisory, government advisory committee, and that's Craig Dunn, to, to, one of, to the International Standards Associate organisation. So, yes, it's blockchain, but I dare say they'll have a very strong FinTech component to it. I think you've already seen this from the Ernest & Young consensus profile. Um, I think that the key one to me is the incumbents. Uh, what are your biggest competitors, incumbents, other FinTechs in Australia? and overseas ones coming into the market. We are seeing, from, again, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of overseas competitors coming to the market, some of them very friendly because they're expat Australians wanting to return home and wanting to establish in Australia again. And what are some of the issues? Um, there's the internal ones and the external ones. I'm not going to get too much focused on the internal ones because that's something where we're not, as, as an organisation like Austrade that looks out. Um, the external ones, customer acquisition, building relationships with channels to market, building partnerships with banks and, and other financial institutions. Um, if you take the, the, the recent chapter, under the guise of that, we, we ran our first uh, China FinTech Roadshow um, some weeks ago, and it was a huge success. We got very close to companies like Alibaba and Tencent Corporation. And inter interesting enough, I get asked questions internally around, well, stand around the fintech space, shouldn't you get close to HSBC or Citibank or, or someone else? When you've got a company like Tencent that's now one of the top ten companies by market capitalisation, well, just under JP Morgan, well, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We're very close to them and we're going to keep getting close to them.
Some of the areas of competitive advantage that we see, we have a great regulatory environment. I know it's not perfect, um, but from a, from a point of view in Asia, it's gold standard. We have an advanced financial services industry underpinned by wealth management, our, our pension fund system, and the competition in our funds management sector. I think last, last time I saw it, it's something like 167 funds competing for, if you look at the, you know, the indexes, 100 top 10, 100, 100 stocks in, top stocks in, in the country. That's a lot of competition. And of course, we have access to Asia. And there's the appeal of Australia as well. The appeal, and I want to say more broadly, is not just the livability of our, our, our major cities, Sydney and Melbourne, but also the appeal of Australians in Asia. Uh, we're seen as neutral. We don't, we're seen as, uh, as people that, that come in with, with an open mind. We don't try and explain or say, this is the way it's done. Um, I have a lot of respect for the Monetary Authority of Singapore, but at the same time, um, it's very much paternalistic. We're not, we're not like that. We, we, industry and government do not always agree with it, see each other eye to eye, but we do get along and we do, we're able to formulate some pretty good policy along the way. Um, but I also want to say that um, for fintech companies doing business in Asia, it is going to be, it's not going to be the same as doing business in the US or European markets where you can get traction faster, you can get customer acquisition faster, but you're also going to burn more money too. So even if you do get higher capital rounds, you're going to burn through it very fast. Asia is a little the opposite. You are going to burn through less money, but it's going to take you more time to, to get the customer acquisition, and navigating those markets is a lot more opaque. It's not as transparent, and you do need to have a very strong understanding of the region and understand the different ways of doing business across different parts of Asia. Um, interestingly enough, I'm, we're, we're also seeing that, that there is a number of Australians out there that have worked for our major financial institutions, particularly our banks in, in the IT departments uh, and innovation departments, that don't want to return home just yet. They're quite happy to start their own fintech firms and, and do business across Asia. And there are some firms here in Australia that at the same time recognise that, okay, if I'm going to do business in Asia and obtain capital from Asia, what does that, what does that mean across my, um, the, the mix of talent that I need? And that means I need people that I trust and can do and, and work with in my own team that understand those markets. And we are seeing that. Um, and they also recognise if they are going to get capital from Asia, they're going to have to do business in Asia too. Okay, in terms of um, agreements, and this is where we hit you know, behind the border agreements with, with uh, the key regulator, the Australian Securities Investment Corporation. We've got current agreements with Kenya, the UK and Singapore. They're good agreements. They, these are all sophisticated financial markets. What else, where else could we look at? Well, I can't speak on behalf of ASIC because it's a different organisation and I know Mark Adams and his team are very busy. But I am going to be engaging in a government-to-government -government conversation with them on Friday, and some of that conversation will be around what other markets, particularly within Asia, should we be looking at? And I know that some of that discussion will include Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Korea, 
And um, we'll also bring up the topic of the other ones, Hong Kong, China and Japan as well, and Thailand as well. But, um, and I say that also because I know some, I, I'm aware of some very high-level visitors coming from some of these countries. And, and some of them are what's known as special, uh, on a special visitors program, which is, which is done by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And therefore, there'll be pressure from government at a very senior levels of government to look at um, other areas that other parts of our government should look at. I'm, tr I'm trying not to give away too much because I can't say it, but um, I, I, do rec I would recognise that Indonesia, Vietnam and possibly Malaysia would be on the cards. And I know that in, I know with Mark's own, in Mark's, Adam's own mind, um, South Korea is, in his own words, ripe. I think we've also got the benefit too that um, government, believe it or not, actually talks to each other. And we've got some two very large, very capable programs in the region. One is known as the Mekong Business Initiative and the Australian-Indonesia Economic Governance Partnership. You may not have heard them, but they're some, doing some great things out there. The Mekong Business Initiative is, a, is approximately a $12 million program. And it, it's, it's costly. But one of the key initiatives within that is financial inclusion across the Greater Mekong area. Um, and under that last year, we held the first together as, as a combined government age, age set of agencies, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Austrade, ASIC, and even the industry got together and said, let's do this regulatory boot camp for ASEAN regulators. And we were oversubscribed. We, we, we basically booked out a hotel in Singapore. Um, and it was amazing to have 40 regulators, various high senior regulators from the region in one room um, and discuss areas where they could essentially harmonise. That, 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 in fact, that's what we want to do. Uh, and it's behind the border. It's not, um, it's not something we have to do, but um, it's, it would really give... A lot of um, it would it would help business tremendously if they knew that they could be comfortable that regulations across different markets um, were something they were familiar with. And similarly, Indonesia is a bilateral one because it's such a strategically important country. We work directly with the, the key regulator there and the chairman, and, and um, it's a it's a great relationship we've got. In fact, I believe the former even finance minister has a has a house over in Little Little Collins Street, and uh, the, the chair of that the Indonesian regulator OJK is almost a citizen of this country. In some ways, he's he's back and forth every month. And look, I'm just throwing some ideas, um, and I'll be honest, it's also part of my own business planning process that. I do want to work as part of Team Australia, and that means government and industry and state and federal governments together. Um, how do we you know, help and promote harmonisation uh, across in, in, in financial technology across the region? In, that, in, in many parts of Asia, that they'd like to see more financial inclusion. We'd like to see more open markets. So it's a win-win each way. Um, we want to work with the key industry associations. We want to work... Um, 
particularly with progressive financial institutions, um, so that's not just with governments but also financial institutions. One key one that we're working closely with is the Kazakhorn Bank of uh, Thailand, um, and they are highly progressive. They believe in acquiring new technology, not developing it on their own. Um, they probably heard about our Mikey experiment down here in Melbourne. Anyway, um, with state and federal governments, well, we, we're work, working together as, for example, um, there's a big blockchain event that takes place in New York in next month and we're working together with Victoria and New South Wales and I think that's a great Team Australia approach. And of course I want to work with everyone to develop material and content um, to promote our capabilities. Okay, I'll move on to funds management. And the key theme that, 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 that I'm, I'm, well, the Australian, Australia's financial services team will have is, is managing Asia's wealth. Um, it's progressed from really managing China's wealth to managing Asia's wealth because I think it's broader. And I think that we need to take into full consideration of some of the agreements that we have in place with Japan and Korea. Um, I think the headline component is that, yes, we have this huge sector that does funds under management, 2.8 trillion, yet only 3.6% of it is, is exported, is exportable. We manage overseas money. And, and why, is that, why, is that a, why is that a concern? Well, if you take Hong Kong and Singapore, it's rel it's re it's, those figures are 80% and 60%. Mind you, I know in Singapore most of that money is, is, is Chinese-Indonesian money, and that, that's, there's no, that's, that's the truth. Um, but we have a long way to go in terms of getting, out, getting our fund managers out there and exporting. And what are the key drivers? Demographic changes, um, ageing populations, pension and saving systems changing too. Um, they, they no longer can sustain um, a defined benefit, so a payout of a certain rate. Uh, for example, Korea, um, in 2045, they will fall off a cliff, so to speak. And, and they know they have massive changes that have got to go through to moving towards a defined contribution system. And whilst it's not, ours is not perfect, it's very well considered across Asia and as a model. And under, underpinning all that is a key, you know, our, our regional our free trade agreements and the Asia Regional Funds Passport, which Ken, Ken will talk about. But um, that particular graph, if any, the only one I want to point out to you is the dominant region where, we're, where the income is coming from is Asia. So what are some of the issues and complications? I think just the key graph, the sources of funds in Australia. Well, other than the fact that, yes, we manage such a low percentage of capital overseas, as mentioned, but where are those funds? 62% coming from Asia Pacific. And whilst I'm not going to go into detail of that, and I've explained it's essentially a free trade agreement for funds managers, um, but issues remain around the implementation, what sort of vehicle it's going to look like, how's it going to, how's it going to be. I know there's lots of questions, um, but one thing I can say is that 
Austrade and DFAT have never seen in the last several months the number of high-level visitors coming in from overseas wanting to be Australia's new dance partner. And that's not only going to... That's just going to continue. Um, for example, um, recently we had a delegation from Korea. There were 20 to 24 asset managers representing $460 billion of wealth that they manage alone, and they want to be our new dance partner. And I think about almost now, um, my own minister is in Japan, and he's leading a discussion on our specialist infrastructure funds management industry for pretty much the entire day. And it's an area where our minister and our sector feels very competitive in. Notwithstanding the fact that it's also our 50th anniversary of Japan Japanese relations too. Some of the issues that, I, that, that, I, that I'm seeing in it, well, what is the perception of, of, of Australian fund managers out there in Asia? Are, are, we, are, we, are we more than just specialist infrastructure fund managers or property managers? Uh, what are we like at equities? What are we like at bonds? What are we like at other instruments? Um, you know, take, take, take apart from someone like Challenger that's a complete specialist in annuities, and very good at it and very dominant in that sector. But what else is there? What else are we known for? Um, the other bit is, what do we know about Asia ourselves? What do we know about doing business in Asia? Do we lump it as one homogeneous market or do we see it as many separate markets, which we should be doing? And what about our... And, and not, the question that always arises when you get down to the detail when foreign, foreign asset managers, institutions come to Australia as well, we don't quite understand what your trust vehicle is. We don't understand what vehicles you use, or, we, or you get to the end of the line and all these questions around, then we hit the, we, we, they ask the final question around tax, and then it's, oh, OK, thanks very much, and they go away. But um, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that is that the recent Treasury consultation paper released last February um, on withholding tax options is very positive, especially if we stick to the, you know, something like a flat rate 5% across the board. It's simple. Hopefully that's what we, hopefully that's what we come up with, because that'll be great. Um, and, I, and I'm aware that you know, other markets like Luxembourg and Singapore, you know, it's, it's a flat zero rate. And that's, but they, they are, you could argue at the same time, they're, they're conduit markets. They're not, they're not markets in their own right. Now, this is by a specialist asset management consulting firm, Casey and Quirk, which is uh, now, now part of the, the, the bigger, bigger Deloitte picture. This consulting firm only does one thing, asset management. Now, I think there's one thing I'd probably draw attention to, a couple of things I'd draw attention to, and that is the legacy segments and where, where is it headed. So where is it headed is going to local and retail private banks, it's going into DC pension funds, our own, our own self-managed super systems, and insurance. So that's where the net flows are going into. 
Now, the revenue opportunity, that is, if you're a fund manager, we're going to see commercial opportunities. Where, the, where they have been and where they are now, sovereign wealth funds, state-sponsored pension funds, Australian super, Japanese retail, and global private banks. Where is it moving to? Local and retail private banks in Asia, defined, defined benefits pension systems, insurance, self-managed super, and defined contribution pension systems, which are on the rise. And of course, family offices. So this is where the business is going to be, and this is where we need to prepare ourselves. Some of the key points are things that are, that are, that are gained, things that we need to understand and, 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 and develop strategies to counter. We, we, approach, we, we approach Asia with many outdated strategies. A good example is, I've got to be careful, just my, my friends work at places like Fidelity and Franklin Templeton, but they come in with a suitcase. Okay, these are our products. We don't change them for anyone. Or the other side of Asia is um, very localised fund managers that only serve that market. And what we're going to do is come up with something in between that. So therefore, in addition to that, in terms of the graphs, those opportunities are shifting towards insurance, retail investors, regional private banks, and defined contribution pension schemes. And, there, and regional fund structures, as per that graph there, I think that's important, is that if the research by Casey Quirk is right, that the, a local fund structure, and hopefully that is something that the passport will be part of and, and contribute to, and it's something that we all need to get behind, is that that big local fund structure is the passport, and how we define it, that'll be the dominant vehicle, and that's what we can play in. And despite all the, you know, I know USIS is a big model, and Luxembourg has visited Australia recently too, because they, they're worried about this piece of research and where it's all going. Um, and I think that, that, that worrying by, by the likes of the Luxembourgs is a good thing, because it means we're on the right track and we're in the right place, right part of the world. So, Australian fund managers will need to have a stronger geographic focus across the you know, don't, don't treat Asia as a homogeneous market, a very targeted engagement model, and that means working with other, and that will mean either putting people in place into those markets, taking advantage of those FTAs in places like Korea and Japan and China, where they can put people there, and start developing products and business engagement models that suit those markets. And always be mindful of the regulatory status too. That's just some quotes. Um, and it's a key point. Just We need to leverage, like anything else before, the FTAs and the regional funds passport and, get, and work within it. Because by and large, all the big funds across Asia um, yes, there, there is the, the, the badge of government goes a long way, and, and that's why the big fund managers are always happy to travel with a minister. So what do I want to do? 
leverage the, uh, the, the regional funds passport and FTAs, provide the funds management sector with insight and market intelligence uh, by going to those markets, seeing it firsthand, and also bringing some of those, those markets in, into Australia. So we want to bring Chinese asset managers to Australia. And we want to go over there and talk to their asset managers and talk to their insurance firms and talk to their trust companies. Work with our friends in the state government and the Financial Services Council. Hopefully we're still a friend, John. Um, engage with DFAT, Treasury and other stakeholders like Ken. Um, and it's a bit of a Trojan horse, but one thing that a lot of the Asian economies love is they like the idea of corporate education. Um, yes, we are trying to sell something, but we're selling it in a way that gives them something as, in return as well. Um, I've seen fund managers successfully run masterclasses, so is what they badge it. So over a period of three days, they will, they'll work through existing customers, um, prospective customers, and would host, say, a VIP night with just with a handful of people with the most senior person in Australia, usually the ambassador at the ambassador's residence. Um, Richard's been in that sort of place before and has done it um, because it works well. And there's no reason we can't, can't do that together on a, on a broader scale where it could be a masterclass around debt financing, um, it could be around um, Asian equities, it could be around um, bonds. Um, it doesn't really matter, but we can run these classes around those products or those, those at-type classic classes. At the same time, we can run classes or, or educational areas around our defined contribution pension system, um, which is a Trojan horse for bringing our fund management system in play. We, we, it is a very complex system, and they want to know about it, warts and all. So that's something I'd like to see probably more of um, and work with everyone here on. And of course, how do we improve the brand and image? So I, if I can, I'll probably try, I'll be run out of time, but I'll, I'll like to um, get some paperwork done, and that is put together collateral, both um, physical and, and, on, and on the web. And that's it. Thank you very much, Stan, and uh, go to Team Australia. Great stuff. Thank you. Uh, an enthusiast and an experienced player, a public, a public servant, um, with very well-formed views on the way to go forward uh, in financial services in the region. And uh, thank you very much, Stan, for your um, 
paper, your comments. I think what has come through today uh, is this, um, I hope what's come through today is a very strong effort by the Commonwealth Government, by the Australian Government and, and the state governments, Victorian state government as well, and New South Wales, on how do we get value from the uh, openings that are arising through the free trade agreements and the opening of eco eco economies in the region. It is about financial market integration. And I think there is no question that the Australian Treasury, the ASIC, uh, the RBA, uh, and the various trade industry financial services associations in Australia are without doubt um, working uh, strongly to get to this concept of financial system integration and to do it with um, a very real sense of purpose about the opportunity but also with a sense of purpose about uh, stability and prudential soundness. Those are key matters, obviously, for, those, for the regulators. Um, but I think there should be no misunderstanding that the dedication by Treasury and ASIC in particular to getting the Asian Region Fund's passport up and running is a very serious dedication. And um, it, is, it is progressing. Uh, I work, or we work in the, uh, the APEC Study Center on the APEC Business Advisory Council. Uh, there are 63 business representatives from across the region uh, appointed by prime ministers and presidents of the 21 economies of APEC on that council. A fair number of them are dedicated to financial system integration and over the last five years we have created the Asia Pacific Financial Forum and in that forum we've now got 300 or so companies from across the region, globally, global and regional companies, um, whose work it is is to manage the process or help recommend the processes of financial market integration in the region. We're doing it for obvious reasons. One is that there is in this region a sense that um, the Washington consensus didn't do this region a, a great deal of value um, following the Asian financial crisis and the global financial crisis and that we as a region need to develop our own thinking, our own ideas about the regulatory processes that are needed to get uh, markets integrated. Uh, and that process is going forward in, in detailed planning arrangements uh, through the Asia-Pacific Finance Forum, uh, and it includes um, serious work on all the issues we've discussed today, uh, and in particular on the, well, not in particular, but with the focus on the Asia-Pacific Finance Forum, uh, the Asian region financial passport. What is, what is important is that the, um, the passport is seen as the significant challenge for regional economic integration and financial integration. And that is why I think governments, uh, the Australian government particularly, is 
is an advocate of it and pushing it. It's a very strong advocate. The APF various work streams are in there supporting this effort. It is complex for the reasons that uh, Kristen mentioned and that um, Stan has mentioned just now. Uh, there are complexities uh, on the way in which we recognize the, the, the relationship between a regulator in Singapore or in, in the um, Asian Region Fund's passport, those that have signed up include um, Korea, Japan, New Zealand, Australia. We hope that we will get Singapore, Philippines involved as they're ready to come on board. But the, if you can envisage getting coordination and recognition, mutual recognition of an agreement, of, of a set of regulations that allow the passport to operate. In other words, the, the company in Australia can sell its products into the, into the passport markets and vice versa. That takes a lot of uh, regulatory coordination and policy coordination. It is not easy, but that process is nearly completed. Uh, the, the intention is that the uh, signatory parties uh, later this year, we'll start the operation of the Asian Region Fund's passport. It's the beginning of a process that we hope will lead to the development of further um, participants in the Asian Region Fund's passport, including uh, China, including hopefully in time India, uh, Hong Kong, of course, uh, and, and the broadening of the concept. The intention is that we do hopefully replace USITS, which is the European um, Luxembourg Irish model, sold well, in, is selling well in, in the Asian markets. That may be subject to ch different changes, and we don't know where that, that will go, but it is. It's certainly an, an effective instrument. We want to manage, we want to replace that over time with an Asian region funds passport for this region. The idea that we generate funds, savings within the region, invest them in the region, uh, has co consequences for capital accounts and for economic integration. Uh, and that's what this is about. It's long term. And the, what, what is important is that the free trade agreements we've discussed today are ways in which we can facilitate these developments in the Asian Region Fund's passport. Over time, if we make other free trade agreements uh, as a possible with Indonesia and maybe India over time, the objective will be to ensure the financial services and the concept of the Asian Region Fund's passport is transferable into those agreements over time. Uh, and that, that is a challenge we're all facing now. And it's a real challenge for Australia. Uh, and I think that um, we should be commending our uh, bureaucrats for the very complex work they're doing on this, but they're taking it up. Yes, there are difficulties. The, uh, Stan mentioned the, the tax, tax issue. The consultation, consultation paper issued earlier this year, uh, I think uh, in uh, March, um, did give some very useful comment by the Treasury on the way in which um, conduit 
arrangements would be handled and on withholding tax. No decisions taken yet, but there is serious debate ongoing now on, on, on those matters which are critically important to facilitating the, um, the agreement and in, particularly important to Australia and, and encouraging foreign players to invest their funds through Australian uh, funds managers into Australia and through Australia into Australia and to other countries. In other words, we become a conduit. This is the challenge of, of an open financial system uh, and it requires uh, a, a great deal of um, enterprise by players in the markets uh, what, is, what is clear is that some of the issues on disclosure, on, on fees, on the presence of Australian players in Asian Region Funds Passport, having a presence in regional markets, it is important to do that and it will be necessary to understand the other markets in which you want to offer your product. These are all matters of a private commercial nature for the private sector to deal with. Um, the bureaucrats can set the standards, the, 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 the way in which these things can, can operate. But it is a challenge now is to the Australian industry to move forward to develop business models that fit those standards. And that's the challenge. And I, I, I would hope that um, you are encouraged by what you've heard today uh, and uh, I think the, uh, probably one of the matters that has occurred to me as, we've, as I listened to the two presentations in particular is the specificity of what financial services can evolve around um, the, the, the trade agreements and around the Asian region funds passport. And they are entirely commercial. They are matters for commerce to deal with to examine, to exploit, and to move forward on. I think you should take it that you have a very strong, supportive government and regulatory agency framework to let that go forward uh, with a high degree of prudential sensibility and, and uh, standards. Uh, but the decisions how to do it, as Kristen said, and uh, I think as uh, Stan has said, are really highly commercial decisions. And I hope that this workshop has been helpful in helping form your minds to um, to do the uh, to get into this into this business development over the time over time. Can I can I invite you to lunch and then come back and uh, we can take questions? Please, this uh, lunch is served over here. Then we'll move into questions. Thank you. We we intend to finish by two o'clock. I know Kristen's got to leave by then. So if you could. Um, uh, avail yourself of lunch and then we can start again. Can I, can, can I just make uh, a few points? I, I, I did mention that uh, we have to conclude this at 2 o'clock. It gives us, we've got a 15 minutes. Um, if you'd like to get another sandwich and a cup, cup of tea or coffee, please do that and come uh, take your seats. There, there are, you've had uh, I think two excellent presentations and uh, quite uh, detailed. Um, are there any issues that uh, any of you would like to 
explore further. It may be a, a question or a statement or an observation on the, on the, 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 the work that's been, been presented to you. Anyone like to start this off? Yes, please. If you could um, announce your name and organization and then, please. We, we've, got, we've got speakers here. My name is Alan Wayne. I'm on the faculty of Harvard Law School at Harvard University. Ken, thank you very much to you and your team for facilitating today's session and to Kristen and Stan and indeed to you for such excellent informative presentations. My question is more to Kristen about the perception of the adequacy, the efficiencies to be gained from free trade agreements. I think many of us here would acknowledge and agree that such agreements are critically important to allow companies to identify and to capture and to sustain increased development. I think what we are observing internationally and perhaps even domestically as well is that there tends now to be a popularity of narrative and an authority of implementation intersecting to subordinate conversation about the ability of free trade agreements to improve economies to a focus more on protectionism. And Christian, prior to your presentation, you made mention as well of various stakeholders in Australia who are not as supportive as others of the free trade agreements. My view is that there has been an increasing separation within many developed economies in particular and in emerging economies as well by those community groups from what they believe improvements in financial services provide to them in terms of their own economic prosperity. My two questions are, do you believe too that there yeah, perhaps is a misunderstanding of the benefits to be derived from free trade agreements in terms of general community and public well-being. And second, if you do, what you would recommend for government to do to change the perception of how we are seeking to integrate financial services in an Australian context more internationally? Hmm. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you. Great question. Thank you. Are there any other... Observations, or there's a very quite a question <laughs> which we'll have a go at. But um, any, any anyone else like to offer a comment on what you've heard today? All clear. Well, let's go to the sandbox. Uh, looking at stand to uh, how, how does how, how do they? Uh, sorry. This one's good. Much of the regulatory discussion um, within particularly ASEAN economies and the harmonisation of key pieces of regulation is around two parts. The concept of a regulatory sandbox and an innovation hub. And that innovation hub, for example, in Indonesia could be housed 
within either the key regulator, OJK, which, which represents the equivalent to APRA, ASIC and a little touch of the RBA rolled into one, as well as their bank, bank Indonesia, their central banker, wants to have their own innovation hub as well around, around payment systems, because that's an area they have remit and jurisdiction for. Um, we've also got to keep in mind with, the, with, the, with our own regulatory sandbox in Australia, um, that was not a full-time team until very recently. It was a group of people, group, a very small group of people moonlighting, uh, um, led by Mark Adams, moonlighting literally, both doing their day job as well as, as, well as their, their evening job of, of, of running this sandbox, so to speak. Um, so it's only until recently they've, they've actually had some full-time dedicated staff to do so. Um, so if there's any key area that we want to we want to help harmonise the regulation, it is around the concepts of a sandbox and an innovation hub where you can actually do some work. But again, you know, ours is you know it's not perfect, but it's pretty good for what it is, um, and the, and the fact that we've got full-time dedicated people. Uh, I think some of the key key things that we've seen coming back from the region, and I and I. I'm pretty close to the Indonesian regulators, so I, so I get it from them quite, quite personally up and from their commissioners, even sitting down over coffee with them the last couple of weeks, is, yes, um, you know, we, we've paid this consulting firm, and it's a big-name consulting firm, a whole lot of money to, to help us design a, 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 both an innovation hub and a regulatory sandbox. But they can't tell us how to run it because they have no experience in running it. So they naturally go back to, to people that they know, like the Australian government, and say, hey, look, um, we don't know. We, we, we know how to design one. We know how to put out the press release and everything else, but we we honestly don't know how to run one. So, yes, we can have those concepts in Asia, but there's also going to be a great deal of capacity building that goes with it. So, even though we could do one with, say, for example, you know, a, an agreement like we have with um, the Monetary Authority, Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, with with the UK. Um, FCA, they're, they're deeply sophisticated, huge amount of resources. It's not a problem, you know, having, having companies come here and our, our companies go there and, and, and work them together. But in markets like, say, Indonesia, Vietnam, they haven't got that capacity. So as, as much as we probably, if we end up doing any deals with them, it'd be on the basis that other parts of the government come in and say, okay, what do you need from, what do you need from us to help you get, get to a get to a, uh, a level of sophistication that industry will, will want to draw into. So therefore, those type of agreements will take place in parallel with similar agreements between our two, our relevant industry associations. So I'm giving something away here that's going to happen over the next six months or so. I think this one's working. Efficiency gains from FTAs, yes. Importance to governments of efficiency gains and um, how to improve the narrative, if you will, to uh, deal with this um, separation and the growing interest in protectionism, I think is Alan's question. Thank you. Would you like to have a go at that? Okay, I just um, wanted to respond to your... Um 
comment about the different perceptions around the, the FTAs and their gains and losses. And you, you, you quite correctly point out that there are different views and perceptions about the benefits or the gains of FTAs. And I wouldn't say any one view is invalid, they're all valid views. Um, I think the important thing is that there will always be winners and there will be some losers, of course, from FTAs as well. But I think those perceptions, the important thing is that they're actually underpinned by some evidence or some actual research that does identify where the gains are and where the losses potentially are. So we're not just talking about rhetoric, we're actually talking about what, what these impacts are. Um, having said that, it's a very difficult thing to measure the, the impact of FTAs, particularly in the wider business and community environment, and it is a problem that I don't speak for the government, but in our view they're very aware of. Um, they're very conscious of making an effort to try and communicate to business, to the community at large, what the FTAs do, what they offer. Um, they are currently at the moment DFAT commissioned a study on FTA utilisation, which is a large study that the business are conducting also with PwC to assess how businesses are actually using the FTAs at the moment. Are they using them? Are they benefiting them? What are the impacts being? So I think studies like that, research, some to the extent it's possible, some sort of quantifiable real evidence of what the FTAs are not doing is very important for informing the community at large of what these FTAs are doing, how they can be approved, what can be done to help use them or ameliorate any adverse impacts they might be having um, and also to work towards future FTAs and future regulatory arrangements. So in our view the government's very aware of that and they're doing a lot to try and improve that um, but it is quite a difficult thing when you're trying to assess particularly in services and investment what impacts are on business or on the community. I hope that addresses it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about as an example from behind the border? Um, I won't say which country that is correct, but um, one of the Japanese Japanese and the Japanese Japanese Another question, you've referred to your important work in funds management and I think the work of Ken and his team is so critical to advance these complex, challenging areas. In Australia, though, I think it is accurate to say that if we refer to infrastructure, that there is a public view about the benefits to be obtained from private ownership of infrastructure that is different to the priorities that many governments have whether coalition governments or Labor governments, and often these are fiscal issues as well. With this focus on asset managers coming to Australia in the way that you've said, and I agree with you, that's going to be increased competition. To what extent do you feel that our financial capability, the ability to enable our knowledge and skills and diligence through technology, that those matters are now becoming increasingly out of phase. Uh, 
with the government's ability to persuade voters that these changes actually reflect their interests. I think all of us agree that you know, there is efficiencies to be gained by having reduced tariffs and increased trade. But I think it's also accurate for us to say that if we go to the work site now that we have adjacent to the university and ask many of the workers there, do they feel that they are going to derive benefit from free trade agreements? Many of them probably won't know, and some of them would probably have a strong view that they won't. It's that gap that I think is increasing, and Ken, I know you're doing important work in this area in the way that you've described, but I think it remains a significant challenge for the Western economies, and it's why I think we have this narrative now of sort of popularity in terms of protectionism. Do you have any views about these issues and whether or not we're focused too much on the broader outcomes to seek agreement rather than seeking to obtain an understanding and an endorsement of the process to be applied? Infrastructure is delivered usually at, at, a, at a state and municipal level, if you want to call it. Um, though I am aware of some of the more sophisticated um, organisations or asset or institutional funds out there that use companies or organisations like FutureEye that do a lot of social surveys um, prior to any decision um, is made on the community. And they're the, those institutions that use organisations like that to get a, a gauge um, on how the community feels uh, prior to any formal announcement is probably has paid off very well. And it's something we can export um, through our institutional funds and out through our asset managers as we start looking at key projects in overseas markets. That's what I'm seeing, but I don't see huge take-up in it. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm afraid we do have to c conclude this now, and Kristen has got to leave. Um, I'd like to thank you all for being here. L let me make just one announcement. In, in the red packs on your in the seats, um, are details of future programs. The next one will be in this series will be on the 1st of May at RMIT. I'm not sure where in RMIT, but it will be disclosed in invitation. And it, that will deal with uh, trade agreements uh, for companies looking at um, growth in the food sector, um, looking at the impact of the three tr trade agreements on food. Um, and it's a very big, as you all know, it's a huge industry in Victoria and, uh, and Australia broadly. Uh, so we, we, will, we will have some uh, experts uh, in the food sector, including um, some academic researchers, but also uh, serious market players uh, to, to be uh, involved in that event. Uh, later in the year, we'll be running functions um, and lunches for the mining services, ICT, Design, Creative Industry Services, and Legal Services. These will all be advertised on the APEC and our ABAC website um, of the, of the, of the centre. I'd like to thank uh, 
you all for being here. I'd like to thank the team from the APEC Centre, um, particularly Bonnie and uh, Cassandra and John over there and um, Kevin and Aaron for the work, uh, for bringing this together. I hope it's been interesting and very useful for you all. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Goodbye.